Scripture passage for this morning's sermon is Ephesians 6, 10 through 20. That's page 979 in the Pew Bibles. We don't have pews, but we have Bibles back there. So if you don't have a Bible, you can grab one from back there. Ephesians 6, 10 through 20. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and, as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication, To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. May God bless the reading and preaching of his word. Let's pray. Rise, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered. And gather to yourself now, Lord, the glory that is due to your name and your name alone. I am weakness and nothing but weakness. But you delight to take weak things and to display your strength. And so I pray that you would do that now for the glory of your name. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O God. For it is for your sake that we pray. Amen. We have been talking about spiritual warfare here at Glory of Christ over the last several weeks because that's the issue that Paul raises at the end of Ephesians and we're just marching our way right through. We have talked so far about the power of God over all of the enemies of our souls. We have talked about the the origin and the destiny of Satan. And we talked last week about the origin and destiny of demons. Today, I want to deal with the methods or the tactics that the devil uses because of what Paul says in verse 11. He writes this, Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. That word schemes in the Greek is methodeos, and you can hear in that our word methods, and indeed it's the same word. And so this word in itself doesn't have good or evil connotations, it just means methods. But when methods are devised by someone who wants to harm you, then those are schemes, right? And that's why they translate the word this way, because the devil is not just making, you know, benign methods up. He's making methods to trip and to devour us, and that's why they translate the word schemes, or I think the old King James says something like the wiles of the devil or something like that. And the lesson that I take from Paul's use of this word is that our enemy, the devil, is no haphazard enemy. He's not. 
We know from verses like Ephesians 6, 12 and others that His forces are very well structured. They have a command and control structure. And we know from words like methods that they're thinking about what they're doing. So the lesson I take is that the devil wants to devour us and he has plans to do so. He has methods. He has tactics. He has means by which he carries out his will. He is a, an intelligent enemy. He is an experienced enemy. And he knows how to set traps in which we all can p- fall possibly anyhow. Now having said that, I want to say that to the best of my knowledge, the Bible never directly commands us exactly to spend a lot of our energy thinking about the schemes of the devil. It never encourages us to spend of our time trying to figure out what his battle plans are and, and wonder where is he and what's he doing and what's he planning and, and, and how shall I prepare myself. Rather, it encourages us in many ways and, and, and in various times to seek the will of God and know the will of God and do the will of God. For instance, if you want to flip back to chapter 5, Ephesians 5, 5, uh, 15 through 17 says this, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time. Why? Because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Now, if the Lord wanted us to spend a lot of our time thinking about the methods of the devil and trying to figure out what he's up to, that verse would have been a really good time to say so. Because he just got done saying, watch out because the days are evil. And then wouldn't it just make sense if he wanted this to to let the solution to that be, go figure out what the devil is up to and stop him. But that's not the wisdom. The wisdom is understand what the will of the Lord is. And so when we turn our attention to thinking about words like schemes or methods and seek to understand what our Father would have us know about the enemy, it's very important that we stay on the right track so that we don't fall into a trap and end up thinking about the devil more than we ought or giving him more credit than we ought. And as far as I can tell, the best way to just stay on track is to stay close to the Bible. Really close to the Bible. It's to discipline ourselves not to let our thoughts go beyond what is written, but to stay only with what has been revealed. Now this is important with every subject, right? We want to stay close to the Word. But like, Andre, I was thinking about you, when it comes to science, you have to go beyond the Bible because the Bible doesn't tell you everything you need to know about the job that you're engaged in. And so you, you, have, to, you have to base your thoughts on the Bible, but, but you have to go beyond. But when it comes to something like Satan and demons and their tactics and such, we can't do that. We have to stick very, very close to what is written and discipline our minds to stay only within those parameters. There are a lot of people out there today making a lot of money leading us into vain speculations about things that we have no idea about really. And it's all a big fat waste of time. And it's a big fat waste of money. And I think in some measure the devil succeeds when he lures us into vain imaginings about him. In fact, some of you are probably going to be a little put off by this but because C.S. Lewis is such an icon. But I would even suggest that you be careful with books like The Screwtape Letters. Because even though I I understand what he's up to, he goes beyond what is written and he gives himself to long imaginations about what the devil might be up to. And I just don't see a warrant in the Bible for doing that kind of a thing. I don't see the Bible calling us to think in that kind of depth about our enemy except when the Bible reveals specific things. 
So if you come across a text in the, in the Scripture and it says things about the enemy, well then think about it. The Lord is trying to reveal something to you about that. But here's the deal. Whatever you actually need to know about your enemy, your Father has already revealed it. And you don't need to know anything more. There is more to know about the devil than what is written in the Bible. But you don't need to know it. Everything you need to know, the Father has revealed. So again, when it comes to this subject, we must discipline ourselves to stick very, very closely to the Scripture. Now, before I get into particulars about the devil's schemes, I want to say just a word about the context in which he's carrying his schemes out, because I think it will help us to understand uh, what he's up to, and it will help us to understand the nature of the war that we're in. So if you'll please turn with me to Acts chapter 10. And I want to look at Acts 10, uh, 34 to 43. Acts 10, you may remember, uh, tells the story of Peter being sent uh, from where he was to the house of a man named Cornelius who lived in a city called Joppa. Cornelius was a Gentile soldier, and the Lord was stirring in his heart and preparing him to hear the gospel. And so, I won't go into all the details, but long story short, God got Peter to go over to Cornelius' house. And it's really an amazing story because when Peter gets there and goes into the house, the people are so ready to hear the gospel that they basically say to him, hey, tell us everything that you have to say. We really want to hear it. And uh, you can see that in verse 33 there. It's just amazing to me. I mean, can you imagine going over to your next door neighbor's house and he or she has got the house absolutely filled with all of his or her friends and they're just standing there saying, please tell us everything you want about Jesus. We really want to hear it. That would be amazing, wouldn't it? It would be a, a dream come true. Well, this is what happened to Peter. And so, starting in verse 34, here's what he said. Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality. This is the first time that the gospel went from Jews to Gentiles. But in every nation, anyone who fears Him and does what is right is acceptable to Him. That doesn't mean that everyone's saved who does what is right. What that means is that the Lord is willing to bring the message of the gospel to anyone of that nature. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee, after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge and of the living and of the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. So here's the picture that I want to draw. God sent Jesus Christ into the world filled with power to infiltrate the kingdom of the devil. The Bible tells us in many places that the devil is essentially controlling the world. You look especially at 1 John 5.19. It says the whole world is in the control of the evil one. Now God sends Jesus Christ filled with his power to irresistibly infiltrate that kingdom and to go about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. And nothing could stop Jesus. Nothing did stop Jesus. 
We saw a couple of weeks ago that whenever he meant to heal someone or call a demon out of someone, there was no debating about the matter, right? Jesus said, come out, and the demon came out. There's no debating because Jesus has all power. And, and then, after his burial, his death, burial, and resurrection, Jesus goes to his followers, uh, breathes on them, gives them the Holy Spirit, and then sends them into the world to proclaim the exact same message that he had been proclaiming himself. And, and this is true up to our very day. So that now, even as we send Dave and Kevin into India, we are a part of this long line of people who have been going into the kingdom of darkness, infiltrating it with the kingdom of light. And through us, God is pleading with the people, just as He did then, that Jesus Christ is the one appointed by God to judge the living and the dead, and that if they'll believe in Him, they will be spared wrath from God and instead will have eternal life with joy and peace in Christ forever and ever and ever and ever. Now the reason I take us to this passage and draw this picture is because I want us to see the battleground that we're fighting over. you got the kingdom of darkness on one side, the kingdom of light on the other, irresistibly infiltrating this way, and then there's the battleground itself. And I wonder what you would say that that battleground is. If you had to define the ground over which the kingdoms are fighting, what would that be? I would answer, it is human beings. It is the souls of people. We are not fighting over real estate like Israel or wherever. We're not fighting over political power structures like the Republican Party. We're not trying to reclaim America for Christ through political means. That's not what we're up to. We're not after fame and power and fortune. We are after the souls of those who have been taken captive by Satan to do his will, but who God has now chosen to free and bring into his kingdom. That's the battleground that we're after. It's people. And it's really important that we get this straight in our minds. We are wrestling with the devil over the souls of human beings. And this is why Paul says in Ephesians 6, 10, and 11 that we don't wrestle with flesh and blood, but with devils and with principalities and powers and all that. He does not mean that we don't have a sin nature with which to wrestle, right? Paul could not mean that. Read the rest of the book of Ephesians. The whole book, he's teaching you how to wrestle with your sin nature. So he doesn't mean that. And he doesn't mean that we're not wrestling with people over the gospel or whatever. Obviously, his whole life shows that he had to wrestle with people. But he sees a bigger picture. He sees the kingdom of light invading the kingdom of darkness. And he sees that we're fighting over the souls of human beings. And that's why he says we're not fighting with flesh and blood. We are fighting for flesh and blood. You see, this is why he even told us who are elders and pastors. He said, correct your opponents gently. Perhaps God will grant them repentance and release them from the snare in which the devil has caught them. So even then, Paul is saying you are not wrestling against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. It's really, really important that we get this straight in our heads. And then it's important, if we're to be successful soldiers, that we trust only in the strength of the Lord by arming ourselves with His armor, taking up the sword of the Spirit, and fighting with all of the might that He has granted us. Now, at Glory of Christ, we believe in the sovereignty of God because we believe in the Bible. We believe that God is infinitely greater than the devil, and therefore that this war is not a fair fight, and the outcome is not uncertain. We already know who has won. It's over. We believe that for reasons only known to the Father, 
He has allowed evil to reign for a season. But there will come a day when He will show Himself as the absolute victor of heaven. He will show that Satan has already been utterly defeated and He will bring some persons from every tribe and tongue and nation around the world to His throne where they will worship Him forever and ever and ever and ever with one voice. Amen? Can't wait for that day. That's why we're sending these brothers to India to be an instrument in the hands of God by which He might call some to Himself. But for now, by the wisdom and the mercy of God, we Christians are called to be clothed with the power of God and go into battle and wrestle with the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places over human souls. That's what we're fighting for. This is the proper context now in which we can come back and talk about the tactics of the devil. If you don't have the context right, I think your mind is going to go in 10 million different directions that it should not go. This is the battleground. The souls of human beings, we are fighting for the kingdom of light, which inevitably will win. Jesus Christ is utterly supreme. The devil is defeated, and Revelation 12 tells us that he knows he's defeated. And we are just weak little Christians, clothed with the power of God, being empowered to fight for the souls of human beings. Now, in that context, the devil designed schemes. But they're not so much designed to win the war, because he knows that he's defeated. And again, Revelation 12 says that. He's kind of like Hitler just after the forces, uh, the Allied forces landed in France. You remember that? I think it was June 6, 1944. Hitler knew he was defeated in that moment. Over 100,000 troops landed on that day, and within the next weeks, over a million troops were on the ground, and all the material of war, Hitler knew it is over. I am done. But did he surrender? He, he did not surrender. He fought fiercely. That's the way the devil is right now. He's a defeated foe. He knows he's a defeated foe, but he's fighting fiercely. So I think that his tactics are not so much meant to win the war as it is to just slow down and impede the inevitable progress and victory that the kingdom of God will have. So with that in mind, I looked at probably about 140 passages, I think three weeks ago. I just read them carefully. Uh, meditated on them and just began to, to categorize them into different ways. And what I came to see was that, at least in my view, the devil has five main tactics that he uses against us. And I think that's really good news, that there's not like 53 of them that we have to remember. There are all kinds of sub-things that he does, but I really think that everything God has revealed to us in the Bible can essentially be subsumed under five headings, and they are these. He deceives, he tempts, he accuses, he divides, and he exercises brute force. I'm going to say them again quickly, and then we'll go over each of them. He deceives, he tempts, he accuses, he divides, and he exercises brute force. Let me just say a few words about each of these. But I put a lot of texts in your study notes this week, and I would encourage you to look at those later on your own. Number one, Satan seeks to deceive. What I have in mind here by the word deceive is Satan's efforts to appear as an angel of light and lure people away from God that they might worship anybody or anything other than God. And I take this from texts like 2 Corinthians 11.14 where Paul says that the devil appears as an angel of light. He presents himself as something beautiful. And in this way he deceives a lot of people. As I said last week, I think that there are people all across the United States worshiping demons, but they don't know it. They've been deceived 
into thinking that the so-called spirits or gods that they're worshiping are good and benevolent, but they're not. They're evil, deceiving beings that are trying to lure people away from God to worship anything other than God. That's how they fell out of heaven, and that is their design to this day. And then in 2 Thessalonians 2.9, Paul says that the power, that the devil has power to perform false signs and wonders. So he can perform miracles, basically. And I don't know what that means exactly. It seems to me like there are two options. That it means that he can either literally perform a miracle, but that it's coming from an evil source, or that he can make things look as though he performed a miracle. Like, like one, one thought would be, what if someone who was not walking with Christ tried to rebuke a demon out of another person, and then the demon of his own volition left the person to endorse this guy's ministry, but this guy's a fraud. That was kind of complicated, but did you follow me? I think the devil can be involved in things that appear to be signs and wonders, but in fact are not. So I don't know what false signs and wonders are exactly, but what I do know is that they appear to be powerful and they're very deceiving. And I do know that the goal is to lure people away from worshiping the one true and living God to worshiping anything else in the world. Even atheism is a design in the mind of the devil to get people to worship essentially nothing, although they would deny that they're worshiping. Now as this relates to us who are believers, I think that the primary way Satan seeks to do this is by, by placing false teachers inside of the church of Christ. And I see this in 2 Corinthians 11, 1 through 16. It's a long passage and I don't want to go there now because we don't have time, but please look at that later and take this seriously. Satan himself implants false teachers in the church of Christ to deceive the people of God. You better believe that that's true and you better be aware. It is not for nothing that the elders of glory of Christ are so committed to teaching the Word of God in everything we do around here. Not just Sunday morning, but every meeting we have, we open up the Word of God. When Kevin and I have staff meetings and nobody's around, we don't just go straight to business, brothers and sisters. We break the Word of God together. And we're always going to do that. Because it is the Word of God that arms the people of God against the schemes of the devil. And without it, you are like a soldier standing naked before an enemy who's out to destroy you. It's just not smart. The reason that the church in the United States of America is so gullible right now, at least one of the reasons, the reason that people like Joel Osteen and Brian McLaren can sell millions and millions of books is because pastors are not equipping their people with the Word of God and therefore the people can't smell heresy when they see it. They have no idea what heresy is. I just spoke this week with the CEO of a major Christian publisher, one of the biggest ones that you know of. And I, I, I hate it when pastors do that, but I don't want to reveal her name because I don't have permission from her to do it. But i got to tell you, I was really concerned when I heard the way that she was talking. Because she's open to people that, in my mind, are clearly teaching false things and are clearly leading people away from the Word of God and into vain speculations. And it really concerns me. The body of Christ right now is so vulnerable to deceit and it's because pastors in large are not equipping people with the Word of God. May that never be at glory of Christ. We are just one small little church in a massive movement of God around the globe, and I get that. But for whatever our little part is, may we stay true to the Word of God forever and ever and ever. There's more at stake there than you think there is, and that I think there is, right? There's a lot at stake here. 
and how I pray with all of my heart that we will never give in to the temptation to move away from the serious teaching of the Word of God. As for unbelievers, I think that the devil uses this kind of tactic to deceive them in a whole variety of ways, and I don't want to get into all of it because that is going beyond the Scripture. Let's just face it. He tries to appear as an angel of light and deceive people away from God. So let me just say this to you who are believers and who are wrestling over the souls of people that you love and you want to see come to Christ. There's a little bit of wisdom for you. Strive to be awake to the fact That in one way or the other, the reason that your unbelieving friend doesn't believe is because the God of this world has blinded the eyes of his mind or the eyes of his heart. You go to 2 Corinthians 4.4 and see, it says exactly that. You are not wrestling against a stubborn human being. You are wrestling against spirits that have blinded this person. I don't... I don't doubt the fact that someone's own sin has caused their heart to be hard and all that. I don't doubt that. But I'm just saying the Bible tells us pretty clearly that part of the reason unbelievers don't believe is because they've been blinded by the God of this world. So be awake, Christian. Be awake when you're trying to win your neighbors and your family members. Have eyes to see. You are not simply wrestling with flesh and blood here. Number two, Satan seeks to tempt us into sin. Now, obviously, we see this tactic right off the bat in the Bible. Probably one of the most famous passages in the Bible. Even unbelievers know about this in Genesis chapter 3, where the devil successfully tempted Adam and Eve. And then in the New Testament, in Luke chapter 4, where he unsuccessfully tried to tempt the Lord Jesus Christ. And obviously, every one of us experienced this tactic of temptation just about every single day of our lives. For believers and unbelievers alike... I think that Satan's goal in attempting to persuade us to sin is to turn us away from God and therefore incur the wrath of God. This is what happened in the garden. He slyly and subtly deceived them into believing that God had not really said what He said, and so they took action on their own, and it fell the entire human race. I've said to you before, you really need to stop and think about this. They ate an apple or a piece of fruit, whatever the piece of fruit was. They didn't murder somebody. They ate a piece of fruit. And that was enough to fell the entire human race. That's how serious sin is. Every time we sin little things and excuse ourselves, we have to train ourselves not to do that because sin is serious. And every time the devil tries to tempt you into it, he's trying to get the same cycle to happen again. He's trying to get you to turn your back on God and thus incur the wrath of God. For believers, I think that one of the main effects of this scheme of the devil is to distract us away from the war that we're supposed to be engaging in. Either, and probably every one of you have experienced each of these three things, either we get so caught up in the guilt and shame of what we've done that we're just paralyzed. You ever been there? Where you've sinned and you are so much under the weight of your sin that you are just flat paralyzed and you can't even think about getting involved in the war for souls can't even think about it or sometimes our time is just taking up dealing with the consequences of what we've done it just swallows up all of our time or probably even more insidious we've given ourselves to sin like this and don't even realize it and what i have in mind here is when we give ourselves too much to hobbies and uh, cabins in the north are for me bicycling or playing my guitar or work, or leisure, laziness, whatever it is, family, theology, good things that are that we are obsessing about and giving so much of our time to that we're blind to the war that's happening all around us. We're so caught up in 
meeting our own needs and doing our own thing that we haven't seen what the Lord would have us do or the part that we have to play in the war that's right before us. And so in this way we fall into a temptation and snare of the devil. Now, the good news for us here is that no matter how powerful and how deceitful the temptations of the devil are, the Lord has made us an amazing promise in 1 Corinthians 10.31. And you all know this, but please hear this with fresh ears. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. Don't be thinking that whatever you're being tempted to do is unique to you, because it's not. Every one of your brothers and sisters around the world is undergoing the same types of things. God is faithful. And He will not allow you to be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptations, He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. There's always a way out. The Lord will never allow you to be tempted in such a way that you must sin. He has not given the devil that kind of power. You have a choice to make, and you can make that choice. Tell yourself that. And if you sin, if you decide... Not to listen to the wisdom of God. At times I've had to say to the Lord, please forgive me because I knew exactly what I was doing. You know, you heard Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they didn't know what they were doing. Well, sometimes we knew exactly what we were doing, right? For being honest with the Lord. In those times, there's also good news. And that's 1 John 1, 8 and 9 and then 2, 1. John writes, if we have no sin, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There's your trump card against the devil. You see, he's trying to get you to sin to marshal God against you, and confession is the trump card that you have. And then in chapter 2, verse 1, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin... We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And I would just say to you, if Jesus Christ the righteous is your advocate, who can stand against you? If He is for you, who can possibly stand against you? So if you, even this day, give in to the temptation of the devil and sin, my advice to you is flee to Christ, plead for forgiveness. He will forgive you. Hallelujah. Amen. The mercy of God, Steve, that you led us to sing about earlier, that will wash over us like a flood, and it will belong to us, to the glory of His name. So don't fear. This leads to the third thing. Satan seeks to accuse us before God. We see this kind of scheme in passages like Job chapter 1 and 2, like Zechariah chapter 3 that we looked at a couple weeks ago where Joshua the high priest was brought before the Lord and Satan was accusing him. And then we see it in Revelation 12.10 where the Scripture says that he accuses believers before the throne day and night. This tactic is closely linked with his work of temptation because what he's trying to do is accuse you before God in a way that the accusation sticks, right? He's trying to persuade God that you've done something wrong and that you really are punishable so that he'll marshal the power of God against you. God is wrathful towards sin. There's no doubt about that. Satan himself knows this better than anybody. This is why he was ousted out of of heaven and down to the earth, as Revelation 12 tells us. And so he knows that if he can marshal God against you, you are history, and you will have no chance. And so what he's trying to do is devour you by turning God against you. Now, as far as I can tell in the Bible, there's only one solution to this tactic, and that's to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. 
There's only one solution that God has made for sin, and that is Jesus Christ. Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth, the life. Don't let someone come along and deceive you into believing that all religions are just different paths to the same end. They're not. They're not. Everyone except for Jesus Christ is a deceit because only Jesus was God in the flesh interceding between God and man for the forgiveness of our sins. So if you don't believe, I want to urge you this morning to believe in Jesus Christ. I want to plead with you to do it because honestly, you have no hope without that. If you do not look to Jesus Christ, you will be crushed by the wrath of God. And believe me, you do not want to fall into the hands of the living God. It's much worse than falling into the hands of the devil. So believe in Christ. Believe in Him. That's the way to undo the scheme of the devil against your soul. And by the way, I hope if you're not a believer in Christ, I pray to God that you'll be awake to the fact that there is a great and powerful being trying to deceive you and trying to destroy you. You are not wrestling with flesh and blood either. Now, if you do believe in Jesus Christ... And Satan should still accuse you. I don't know if this has happened to you, believers. But from time to time, I have gone through seasons in my life where Satan is trying to accuse me before the Father. I, I was just remembering last night a time where it was like a three-day-long period where the devil was just intensely coming after me and accusing me before the Father. And I didn't know what to do. I really did not know what to do. Finally, at the end of three days, I'll never forget... I went on this I went on this drive into the woods near where we were living just to try to get with the Lord and try to figure out what was going on. And uh, I'd like to say that the car broke down, but the truth is I ran out of gas out there. And I had to walk miles and miles and miles and miles back from where I was back to where there was gas that I could get a hold of. And I was just talking with the Father, and I was asking Him what in the world is going on. And uh, somehow or other, I just got the wisdom to say to the devil, you know what? Why are you messing with me? You have to answer to God anyway. And if God agrees with you, and I am so sinful that He should send me to hell, this is what the devil was doing to me for three days. He was telling me, you are of the group in, John, in Matthew 7 that appear to be Christians but are not, and Jesus will say to you, why do you call me Lord? Go to hell. He was telling me this for three days very intensely. And finally, in the third day, I just said, you know what? If that's his decision, fine. I trust him. If he sees that in me, I trust him. He made the right judgment. And I don't know if you can worship in hell, but if I can, I will. Because I trust him. Go talk to him. And it was over. It was just, just like that. Over. So, if Satan should come and accuse you, just don't get into conversation with him. Don't do it. Just tell him, listen, you have to deal with Jesus. Jesus has to deal with me. So go to Christ. He is the one that has the power over your soul. He has the one who has the right to make the call in your case. So just run to Him, trust in Him, and tell the devil, don't slander. Remember in, in Jude, uh, we learned a couple weeks ago, we're not to bring slanderous accusations against the devil. Because Don, as you said to me uh, a week or so after, after that sermon, when we do that, we enter into the very thing that the devil himself does. We don't want to do that. So we don't, we don't get into fights with him. We don't say things about him in that way. We just go to Christ and say, the Lord rebuke you. The Lord rebuke you. The Lord deal with you. Only the Lord has the wisdom to do that. I promise you, if you'll do that, eventually the Lord will give you release from the plans of the devil. Number four, Satan seeks to divide and conquer. Now I want to take a little bit of time with this because I think this is really 
a, a scheme of His that is on the ground and present just about every day of our lives. And it's important that we get our minds around it. We don't have the time to read the text, but you can look at Matthew 13, 36 through 43. Jesus Himself here reveals this tactic to us, and I think that it mainly has to do with believers. In other words, this is a tactic that the devil devises against the church. And the reason I say that is because the tactic is to sow weeds among the wheat, and thereby to weaken the wheat and make it more vulnerable to attack. And the way the devil goes about this is by planting people who Jesus Christ Himself called sons of the evil one. He plants them right inside the church. And then He sends them about dividing the church and and sowing destruction in the church through gossip, through slander, through backbiting, through complaining, through opposing the leadership of the church, through preying on people through financial schemes. I bet you you've heard of that kind of thing happening in churches. Through preying on people romantically and, and in even more heinous ways. Please be awake to the fact that the devil himself has the power and does do this. He plants people inside the church. Now this is an insidious tactic. And we have to be awake because it's really hard to see. The people that he plants know how to act religious. They know how to do it. They know how to talk Christian talk. Just look at Luke 4. They know how to quote Bible verses. They know how to appear to be Christians, but they're deceivers. They're destructive deceivers. And if we don't deal with them, Satan will own the church. Sometimes people like this spread their destructive seeds in very open ways, in very public ways, in very vocal ways. And often they come against the leadership of the church with strong force over time. Now I am not talking here about people who bring legitimate issues to the leadership of the church. People who humbly before Christ express problems that they're having or ideas that they have, people like that are a gift from God. And we love people like that. Some of the best things that have happened, Kevin, you probably agree with me, over the last couple of years, some of the best things that have happened around here have been because some of you had the, the courage and the wisdom to approach us and say, hey, I see, I see a problem here. Or something's not quite setting right with me about this or whatever. And we've thought about it, we've prayed about it, we've seen the wisdom of the Lord in it, we've made changes or we've developed new things, and the church has been blessed. You see, that kind of input is a gift from God and we love it. We invite it. We want it. We want Christ-like wisdom. Kevin and I are just men. We don't have all the wisdom we need, right? And Jesus has designed the body of Christ so that no one is the big shot in the church. And sometimes the wisdom that we need comes through the weakest person. And so we love it when people lovingly and in a Christ-like manner bring issues to us. I'm not talking about those people here. I'm talking about people who have no concern for the good of the church. They just want to flex their muscles and exercise power and be a big shot and cause problems. That's who I'm talking about. People like that, if they will not repent, must be opposed and driven out of the church. Mark Driscoll says you've got to shoot wolves, and he's right about that, if they won't repent. Listen, if elders will not stand up to people like that in the church, the church will be owned by Satan. You have probably seen this in your life, haven't you? Some of you at least. We're not arrogant about this, Kevin and I, but I just tell you, in Christ, we're not afraid to stand up to people like that. Because we must. We have been charged as under-shepherds of the church of Jesus Christ 
to protect the sheep by chasing away wolves. And in love, in kindness, but with Christ-like firmness, we will do just that. And of course, as Paul said in 2 Timothy 2, our hope is repentance. We're not battling with flesh and blood. We want the salvation of the wolves, right? I want a wolf dressed in sheep's clothing to really become a sheep. Really. And, and I don't know how this works in God's economy, but in my way of thinking, as long as a person is breathing, there's still a chance that they could come to Christ. And so everything we do would be for the good of their salvation. Even in 1 Corinthians 5, do you remember Paul said about someone in that church, he said, hand that person over to Satan. Why? So that they might come to repentance. And if you read 2 Corinthians, he did. The guy did come to repentance. So that is always our hope. But I'm just saying, if the leaders of the church won't take a stand, Satan will own that church. Another way that some people sow these kind of destructive seeds is more quietly. They do it behind the scenes. And often it comes in the guise of prayer requests. Or sometimes in the guise of just, I I need to share my heart. need to get this off my mind. And very often what will happen is one will approach another and say, you know, so-and-so, I I trust you and I don't know who else to talk to and I just have to say this, but please don't tell anybody that it was me. I just, let's keep this between us. And then they sow their seed of destruction. They gossip, they slander, they backbite. And in this way, either knowingly or unknowingly, they cooperate with the devil and sow the seeds of destruction inside of the church. Now again, The issue that's there may be a legitimate issue. And I'm not saying that there aren't legitimate issues that have to be dealt with. But what I'm saying is, when you handle your issues like that, you are cooperating with the devil. Be clear about this, in one way or the other. You either are a person that he himself has planted in the church, and may that not be the case, but it could be, or he is just simply using the weakness and vulnerability of a Christian who's making the mistake and then he pounces on it and uses it to sow destruction inside the church so that he can divide us and conquer. Just think about it from a war perspective. If he can get us fighting with each other, then we're not mobilized to fight against him, right? So please watch yourselves here. And women, this problem is not exclusive to you. Please don't hear me saying that. But I must say that over the years of my ministry and Speaking with many other pastors over the years, most of the time this kind of destructive seed comes through women. Women have been granted by God, on the whole, emotional sensitivity and the gift of gab, right? You've been given the gift of verbal expression. You need verbal expression. This is why you have tea and talk about things. And you go to the bathroom together. I say, Rachel, Rachel, why do you go to the bathroom with people? Because we're talking, Dad, we're talking. I just can't imagine getting up at a restaurant and saying, Hey guys, you want to go to the bathroom? You know, it's just, it, it's just not men. It's not us. We're not gifted that way. And I, I do mean to say it this way. I consider it a gift from God that you are emotionally sensitive and that you are verbal. That's a gift from the Lord. But what I'm saying is please be awake to the facts that Satan can use your gifts against the body of Christ. And he does. He's very skilled at this. He's extremely skilled. He's extremely experienced. And he knows how to take what God has granted you and use it against the body. So here would be my suggestion to you. Memorize Matthew 18, 15-20, and memorize Galatians 6.1. And I mean this. I'm calling on you to do this. If you struggle with the kind of thing that I'm talking about... I'm asking you in the Lord to go home, start today, memorize these passages. And here's why. The Lord has told you how to deal with the situations that that concern you or that bother you. 
He's told you what to do with legitimate issues. And so, memorize what the Lord has said and simply obey Him. Do what He has said. And I can promise you that Pastor Kevin and I, we will strive as hard as we can to be approachable men and to create an approachable atmosphere in this church where we can listen to issues. I don't want an atmosphere in this church where we can't hear complaints and criticisms. That, that's also of the devil, isn't it? When you get a leadership that's so arrogant that they're beyond question, something's really wrong with that. And we don't want to create that kind of atmosphere. So if we'll work on our side to have listening ears, and if you'll work on your side to memorize the wisdom of Jesus and practice it, then I think we'll undo the work of the devil here. And then when someone comes to you and says, I want you to be the one to listen to me, then you need to learn to have ears to hear at that point and don't be the listener. See, you can cause as many problems by being the soil that receives the seed as you can by being the mouth that plants the seed. So don't listen to it. I was at a business gathering the other day and this woman, she's sort of a new agey business consultant. And she said that she advises her clients to have a friend that they can call up and vent to. And what she meant was that everybody needs someone that they can call up and absolutely rip on anybody with any language that they want to. She explicitly said that. Cuss, curse, do anything you need to do. Just get it all out. Just vent. Including if it's your spouse, she said. I wanted to stand up. Maybe I should have, but it just didn't feel appropriate to me. I just wanted to stand up and say, please, wait a minute. You are so wrong about that. That advice comes straight from a demon. I promise you that. It comes from the pit of hell. You do not need to vent like that. I have seen that kind of thing destroy marriages, destroy churches, destroy relationships. And it is not necessary. If you need to vent, amen. Vent to God. Vent to your Father who knows you and knows the situation, knows the perspective. But one way or the other on that situation, whether you're the venter or the vent e, don't do it. Don't do it. Don't offer your lips or your ears to be part of sowing destructive seeds. And in this way, if we'll just simply follow the wisdom of Jesus Christ, we will undo the plans of the devil for his church. Now, however he goes about sowing seeds of destruction and division among us, and I'm sure that he is tempting to do that right now, at least at some point, I want you to know that Pastor Kevin and I will stand up like men of God, and we will lovingly but firmly oppose anyone who engages in that kind of activity. We will hope for repentance, we will work for it, we will pray for it, but we will not back down and just let it happen, because we got two choices. We can either fear people and do nothing, or we can fear God and do something. I don't want to have to stand before the God of the universe who died for this church and say, Lord, I was too afraid to stand up to somebody when you expressly told me to protect your sheep. I was too afraid. I fear God more than men. So I don't get off on this. I hate conflict and opposition, but I'm just saying in Christ, Kevin and I, I want you to know we're willing to be men of God and stand up so that the devil does not own a church called Glory of Christ. Now, number five, finally, Satan seeks to exercise brutal force. I'm not going to develop this point at all because we're out of time, but I gave you a bunch of text there in your notes, and I hope that you'll look at it at least to some extent. And what I'm getting at here is that at times and in places and in certain ways, either with individuals or with groups of individuals, Satan will just flat out exercise brute force. You see this with individuals uh, who are demonized. 
You see this with whole governments that the Bible says Satan controls. In fact, in Revelation 2, 9, and 10, it at least seems to suggest that Satan can even control religious structures. And so he can flex his muscle. Remember, never forget 1 John 5, 19. The, the, the whole world is under the control of the evil one. He has tremendous power, and at times he will just flat out exercise brute force. Now the hope here for us is that greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. Amen? And if you will be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might, forget it. The battle's over. You win. In Christ and for the glory of Christ. As I said earlier, it would be wrong for us to give too much attention to these things, but at the same time, all this stuff's there in the Bible, and so we have to give a measure of attention to it. And I think the trick is learning how to think enough about what the devil's up to, but not too much. And it's not hard. It's not easy sometimes. But again, I would just come back and say, stay close to the Bible. Stay close to the Scripture. Do not go beyond what is written. But take the time to understand what is written there and walk in the wisdom of your Lord. Now next week... I'm very excited to get away from this part of the subject. I told you a few weeks ago that I I never really wanted to get this deep into all of this, but I sense the Lord would have me do so. But next week, praise God, we get to start talking about the armor, piece by piece by piece by piece. Put on the belt of truth is coming first. And I just can't wait to talk about that with you. But for now, let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, your word is clear that you are far more powerful than all of our enemies. And therefore despite the viciousness of their schemes against us, they fear you greatly. And if we are simply found in you, we will have the hope of victory. They know that their time is short and they know that they are going to lose and you are the absolute victor. So teach us, our dear Savior, how to be clothed in your power and with the strength of your might. Teach us how to put on the armor of God every day so that we can stand against the schemes of the devil. And having done all, to stand. Teach us how to take up the sword of the Spirit and to fight with humility but with all of our might for the glory of your name that some people from every tribe and tongue and nation might know you and love you even as we do. For the glory of your great name we pray all of these things. Amen.